In the world of language, there are few people as experienced or as respected as Patsy Lightbound. Distinguished Professor Emerita at Concordia University in Canada. She has been working in the field of language learning and language teaching for more than 40 years as an editor, a writer, a researcher, a consultant, and she literally wrote the book on how languages are learned. In this interview, we talk about language learning, language acquisition, language teaching, and what life has taught her about the way that education works. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Patsy Lightbound, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. I look forward to it. <laughs> for people who don't know you and your work, could you just uh, talk a little bit about who you are and what you do? Like you, I grew up in a place, a different part of the world. I grew up in North Carolina in the U.S. in a place where, at the time, um, English was the only language I heard, although there are some people who uh, make jokes about the quality of English in the southern U.S. I, I don't join in those jokes because now that I have linguistic sophistication, I understand that there are many different ways of using and speaking English. Um, but I never heard other languages until I got to high school. And when I was 16, I had a French teacher who was a the wife of a military man who had been stationed in the town near where my rural North Carolina high school was. And, and when I started learning French, I just thought, wow, this is, this is a whole new way of seeing the world. And it didn't hurt that this teacher was dynamic and beautiful and exotic in my mind. Um, and so I got really excited about languages and in a way that changed everything in my life. And I, I, I often, I mean, it, it, it literally changed everything in my life in the sense that I pursued French. French became my college major. French became my area of study. It took me to Europe where I met my husband. It took me to Africa in the Peace Corps. It, it, I, was, I taught French for a while um, after I finished my graduate studies or began graduate studies and I went back and furthered my graduate studies. And that's when I discovered language acquisition as another area of focus. And when I was in, at Columbia University, sort of not sure whether I wanted to continue the kind of teaching that I had been taught to do and that I had that had been used on me, which was at the time mostly audiolingual drill pattern practice. Um, and then I uh, took a course in uh, child development. And the, one of the first lectures we had in that course was on child language. And I said, bingo, no wonder we're so unsuccessful in the classroom. We got it all wrong. We're not focusing on meaning. We're focusing on bits of language. Uh, that are sort of disconnected and we need to focus on getting people to say what they mean and and understand what what other people are saying so meaning meaning and form connection right there uh, changed the direction of my research and i went to quebec to montreal specifically with the plan of gathering research data on early childhood bilingualism but discovered that my students uh, because I also started a job uh, at Concordia University in Montreal, I realized that my students were not so interested in early childhood bilingualism, except in a personal way. Uh, 
professionally, they wanted to know about what happens in classroom language learning, because that's what they were preparing for. And so my focus in research turned to the classroom. And uh, I spent a lot of years looking at English as a second language in Quebec, but also began to look more at, uh, look also at French as a second language, uh, French English bilingual programs, eventually dual language programs in the US and in uh, other parts of the world. So classroom second language learning and classroom bilingualism have been the focus of my research for, for 40 years or so or more. Yes, and, and I think you're probably most well known uh, among teachers and, and maybe even students for your book that you wrote with uh, Nina Spada called um, How Languages Are Learned, which is now in its fourth edition. Um, and it was, but it was first published in 1993. Um, yes. So it's, I think that the, the book has seen a lot of changes in, in, in what we know about how languages are acquired. And, and I wanted to just sort of follow the, loosely follow the structure of the book with, with a couple of questions. So could, I, I wanted to talk about the individual first, the student. And because I think maybe it's something that is not so well considered in the classroom is the kind of student as an individual. Um, so, so what, what do we know about individual variation in language learning ability? Well, what we know and what we believe are not necessarily the same. Um, we don't know nearly as much as we need to know, I should say. Um, I can remember when I first was teaching um, uh, pre-service teachers and I would start uh, by asking them, what do you think is the the biggest impediment to success in classroom foreign language teaching? What do you think, why do you think students don't succeed in the classroom? And can you, can you guess what the teachers always said? Um, <laughs> because they don't listen to me. <laughs> they always started with, exactly, they'd say motivation. They don't care. They don't want to learn. They're not bothered. And, and I would always respond to that. It, it, and that was in the context of Quebec. No, the biggest impediment is the amount of time they have to give to the language because language learning takes an enormous amount of time and, and people should never underestimate the importance of time in language learning. It, it, it astonishes me still that you will see advertising for even these wonderful high-tech gadgets and tools that are wonderful in themselves but to imply that you can learn a language um, in three months or three weeks or whatever they say um, is just is, is so misleading and so counterproductive. Language learning is a lifetime project. And even in our native languages, we keep learning. We keep learning. And for a second language speaker to be made to feel uh, incompetent or inadequate because of not having mastered the language. You know, the, the famous, I took French for six years and I still can't order breakfast. Well, you didn't take French for six years. You took French for three hours a week, uh, several months of the year for over drip, 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 drip over the time. So time is a huge thing. And, and I, so yes, the individual in the classroom is, um, comes, to the, comes to the experience with a lot of different expectations and a lot of different abilities. I, I do believe there are differences in our, um, 
I'll call it natural language learning ability. People, some people are more talented than others. I don't think it makes sense to argue against that. Um, but it is not the case that people fail because of their individual differences so much as because of, the, uh, of our failure to give them the time and the opportunities they need and, the, and, and to enhance that motivation that they may or may not lack when they come to us um, as, they, as they take all those years to uh, actually learn the language. So, so what, what about the kind of the, the, the equilibrium between uh, the quantity of time and the kind of quality of time? Like surely 10 hours of really bad teaching is the equivalent of 30 minutes of great teaching. Is there a kind of... Well, I like that equivalence. It sounds quite mathematical and <laughs> precise. Um, uh, to be sure, um, you, as I say, people say I took French for six years. Um, they didn't really take French for six years. And, and to say that they had studied French, I, I mean, the classroom, what I always say is the classroom is where you start learning. Um, and, and in the classroom, what we, what we really want to do is give people confidence that they can learn. We want to give people tools and, and strategies that they can use when they encounter the language outside the classroom. And we want them to feel motivated and capable of encountering and using the language outside the classroom because otherwise they're never gonna learn because the classroom just can never be enough unless that's what you decide to devote your whole life to. And even, even when we look at things like immersion courses, um, immersion is kind of a, it's not quite the right word, is it? it it's the word we use, but, it's it, true immersion is rare and it, it it pretty much requires picking up and moving to a new location like what's the difference for you between kind of spending 6 weeks in some kind of immersion camp and and actually you know being kind of in country what 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 do you think is the difference there well i think uh, 6 weeks in an immersion camp is probably pretty close if you if you honor the rules of that immersion camp and you genuinely uh, make the effort to keep using the language even when you're exhausted at bedtime. Um, but what we, what we typically think of as immersion is, um, is more, um, more a matter of content-based instruction in, a, in an environment where everything else is actually continuing to take place in the language. That, I, I guess I'm, I'm using the immersion, the term, in the, in the sense that it was developed in the Canadian education context where people think of Canadian French immersion um, as a place where children successfully learn French. But the reality is that children in French immersion in Canada spend three or four or five hours a day in a French language classroom and the rest of their lives in an English environment. So it's, it's, it's immersion in a period of the day. But even there, of course, the kid sitting in the next desk might be whispering something in English. Um, and if you walk into the corridor, somebody from another classroom might be speaking English. So the, the, the word immersion in that context has to be defined specifically. Um, the, the, the sort of ordinary dictionary definition of immersion um, would be where you don't really have a choice, but you must, you must function in the language, even when it's really difficult, you just can't back out and say, I, I can't do this anymore. You have to find a way. Um, and, and very few people actually put themselves in that position, especially as they become adults. 
who would do that on purpose? You know, it's painful and difficult. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, there's so many things that you've sort of uh, talked about that I'd like to go a little bit deeper. And, and I think one of them is, is getting back a little bit to, to what you said about unrealistic expectations. And, and I'm kind of wondering because, you know, a majority of, of students who are learning a language right now in the world who are learning English, you know, they'll, they'll be in some sort of state or private education in a classroom with a teacher. And, and probably as well, they have a course book. Um, and then uh, when they've finished the course book, they'll have some sort of exam, you know, on, on the content of the course book. And I'm wondering, given all everything you know about, you know, language acquisition, how, how do you feel about, the kind of standard classroom learning experience. Well, I, I guess I have to go back to the to the thing that I said before <clears throat> about what the purpose of the classroom is, because really, when you think of it, what you've just described, the purpose of the classroom there is to prepare students for an exam. That's really the purpose. And some students in that environment will acquire enough skill and knowledge and enough confidence to expand beyond the classroom and continue to learn through um, electronic interactions, through reading, through personal um, engagement with people who speak the language. Um, but the, but your, your description of the textbook followed by the exam, um, it's true that that's what the experience is of many, probably most students in the world who study a foreign language. Um, but it can only be successful if it, if it motivates and prepares students to keep learning beyond that textbook and that exam. Um, I remember one of the exciting moments in my language learning um, when I was uh, back in that 16 year old stage where I had been studying uh, French in classroom and I, and I really liked it. I'm one of those people that Steve Krashen jokes about. I mean, I love grammar. I just think it's, I just love it. I, I diagrammed sentences on my grandfather's knee, literally. Um, so I love grammar. So I had fun doing that in the classroom. That was exciting to me. But then I discovered a book in, the, in my grandparents' attic. It was called A Simplified French Reader. And it was a book of stories, most of which I already knew, because a lot of them were fairy tales and such um, cultural, um, uh, cultural icons. So I already knew the story, but then when I picked it up, I could read it because it was simplified French, but I, I felt like such a genius because I could now go beyond the sentences that I had learned in the class and I could get something meaningful out of a French text. So that was one of those big steps that took me, I mean, I didn't know anything in those days, of course, about extend, extended reading or or reading, reading as the source of vocabulary development or any of those things that I came to know as a, as a teacher and researcher. But I do know that I was really excited when I discovered that I had enough knowledge 
to get more, that I could, I could take what I had learned in the classroom and use it to, to find more language and more content. And that was really exciting. So I think the, the, the textbook and the exam are only as good as, as they are, are only good insofar as they prepare students to go beyond the textbook and the exam. It's funny because the way that you talk about the classroom almost almost removes all of the technical stuff from from the equation. Like the things that, that you you talk about that are important in the classroom are almost all kind of psychology. Really, it's about like motivating the students and you know preparing them to use and and that's probably not how most language teachers view their role. They feel that their role is, you know, filling the students with all of the technical stuff, right? That's a really interesting comment. I, I, I appreciate that. Let me think about that for a moment. Yes, I think, I think that's a reflection. I think that's partly also a reflection of the way I learn. And I have, I've actually been discussing this with people lately in a different, totally different context that I'll maybe explain to you later, but I describe my own learning as, as, um, as sort of non-sequential. I don't think of myself as a person who learns this. I think what I've been trying to do is I've been working with um, a group of people who have no background in cognitive psychology or, or even what you would typically call educational psychology. These are uh, young teachers in Guinea, in West Africa, who are working in classrooms where their students, and these are their young students, their children in primary and pre-primary classes. And the, the history of teaching in these Francophone countries is the, the history of the French colonial system, which is all about sequence and practice and memorization and exams. And I keep trying to break out of that pattern um, by saying, you know, you don't have, you don't, you must never assume that because you taught that last week, now they know that. So you teach them something else this week and you just add it on. And all of these years, I've, I've talked a lot about, you know, language learning is not cumulative, it's integrative. You don't learn one thing and then another and then another and just make it all a big long line of linear learning. Um, but uh, I've, I've seen it more and more in this context where I'm trying to tell teachers, you know, don't worry if they haven't mastered that this week. You can teach it again in a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, teach something else that will get them excited and that builds on that but doesn't depend on it in a, in a literal point-by-point -point way. Um, learning is cyclical. You just have to keep coming back to the same thing. You never learn something once and one, it's not, what do they call it? One and done. Never. Everything, everything that you learned today is changed by what you learn tomorrow. So it's, you got to keep coming back, keep coming back round and round, picking up the same things and then understanding them in a different way. Uh, listened to an interview with you um, on a podcast um, recently, and and the interviewer asked you flat out because your book is called How Languages Are Learned, and he asked you so, um, so how are languages learned, and and you gave this really beautiful and simple and and elegant answer. You said 
that languages are learned when basically when we use language to do things that we're interested in. Yeah. I mean, is that kind of the summary of all of your lifetime's work in, in language acquisition? Is that basically that simple? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yes, I, I like that quite well. In fact, I think I'll, I'll needle point it on someone and hang it in my office. <clears throat> um, yes, I, I do. I always think it's useful to comment on the name of that book. <clears throat> um, and to confess that when the manuscript was submitted, um, we had a title that was something like um, Language Acquisition Research, colon, what teachers can use from the blah, blah, I don't know, some in enormously long and extremely um, careful title. And Oxford said, no, we're going to call it How Languages Are Learned. And we said, no, 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 you cannot do that. That would be so presumptuous. You must not do it. No, no, they, they insisted. So they had the final word on the matter. But it does sometimes make me um, more than a little uncomfortable to, to think that someone might pick up the book and think that they would hear the last word on how languages are learned, because there is no last word. And indeed, you, you're absolutely, you, do, you have hit on what I do believe, that we learn languages by using them. There is really no other way. I mean, unless you're a savant, and that's a different whole different kettle of fish. It's not. It's not 99.9% of the population. The rest of us learn languages slowly and with effort, and with lots of time. But above all, with the desire to make sense of things by using the language. Mm. So, 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 what about again? I'm sort of going to ask a little bit about about this kind of mix because. I think sometimes it feels like there's these two extremes. There's like one group of people who feel like to learn a language, you have to um, just sort of throw yourself in. Doesn't matter about your mistakes and you'll just learn by picking it up. And there's the other, there's the other extreme, which is all about, you know, flashcards and repetition and grammar drills. But I, I kind of feel again, from other interviews I've watched of yours, it's the, you know, the real learning is somewhere in the middle, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It, 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 again, the, the rare individual who can learn a language without any guidance is a rare individual. The rest of us need lots of experience, lots of language use, but we also need somebody to draw our attention to what we still don't know, what we thought we knew but didn't quite get yet. Um, and, and it's a question of whether we get that kind of information systematically through a textbook or whether we get it through interaction with someone drawing attention to what we haven't quite got yet. <clears throat> um, but we, I, I mean, I categorically um, come somewhere in the middle in the sense that it's, it, you have to have both, learners have to have both opportunities to use the language purely for its meaning and opportunities to have guidance in how the language makes that meaning. We've, we've kind of talked a little bit about the individual um, and how, you know, this kind of individual, you know, variation and how psychology is important in the classroom. Um, and now I wanted to go to the other spectrum and talk a little bit more about, about teachers. Um, because, well, there's two things I want to talk about. So the first thing is, um, I know, and you know from personal experience, because you were in West Africa, right, in the Peace Corps back in 65, 
Um, <laughs> and and so you were working as a teacher, right? But I was one of those Peace Corps volunteers, the so-called generalists. That um, in those days um, they took you in right out of college and um, gave you about twelve weeks of training. In my case, because I already spoke French, um, because I had studied French and lived in France for a year as a student, um, they immediately uh, had me start uh, um, learning Hausa, which is the language that I was going to need in the context where I was working, because my work was with um, mothers and infants and um, child child uh, nutrition and um mother and baby care and so forth. That was that was the work I did in West Africa in 65, 66, 67. So the language I used most was Hausa in that context. Um, and it was it was really all about language learning, not about language teaching. I think what what it what it tells me is that you you understand and you've personally seen you know, at classrooms that where the teachers maybe have very little training and they may have very few or even no resources. And, you know, there, there seems to be this, again, there's another kind of conflict in the field. It's like um, you either have uh, course books and you have materials or, or you don't. And there are, you know, for example, I know that you've talked about content-based learning and there's other things like task-based learning and then there's Scott Thornbury's Dogme and a lot of them are about kind of eliminating resources um, and, and I'm wondering how you feel about you know do you feel that there's a big necessity to have a lot of resources in the classroom to actually be successful at learning a language? That's a, a, a great great big question a good great big question <clears throat> um, the, the work that I'm doing now with um, teachers in, in Guinea, in West Africa, is with teachers who are teaching very young children, children in preschool and primary. And so for them, the, the, the resource that they are accustomed to, first place, they're not accustomed to having any instruction for children in the, at the preschool age. And this is a, a, a big change in their understanding of what education is. Um, what they're accustomed to is children sitting in rows, usually lots of children in lots of rows, uh, in front of a teacher who stands at the blackboard and writes sentences that they all say in chorus. I mean, the only resource, the only physical resource in the classroom is indeed the blackboard. Um, and there are no manipulatives. These are children who are, are supposed to be learning, you know, not just language, but also all kinds of content and mathematics and science and all that. And they're supposed to learn all that from sometimes textbooks that they share often, um, but mainly from what the teacher says in the classroom and from the blackboard. So in that environment, one of my priorities has been to get materials to these people, but not textbooks, um, building blocks and, and counting cards and, uh, all sorts of things that you can manipulate so that you can make some re reality from the the learning that you're expected to do. So in that environment, when I 
think about resources. It's a whole different phenomenon uh, from the when I walk into a university classroom in North America and see all these amazing um, digital resources and people talking to people in Russia and people talking to people in Germany and having these wonderful um, resource-rich experiences that are beyond anything that I could have imagined when I was a student or a teacher. Um, so uh, I, I think um, I think the resources that I consider most um, I almost want to say dangerous. I think dangerous because they're misleading are the textbooks that make you think that if you go from page one to page 302, you have covered something. Um, and it's true that those textbooks can be useful, but I think they're not useful in, this, in, the, in the way that people sometimes think they are. Um, and they're certainly dangerous if they become the whole focus of learning and and if the, if people believe that they that having covered the textbook they've covered the language um, so I mean there are and there of course there are different kinds of textbooks there are textbooks that that build in um, activities beyond the page and, and and there are some really wonderful um, teaching materials that come straight from the you know top level publishers that that are rich and um, suggestive and and but the ones that are dangerous are the ones that you know start with the verb to be and end with the uh, subjunctive and think that you've got some. I mean, you know, it's anyway. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying. And you're you're the first person that's ever described them to me as dangerous, and I agree <laughs> a thousand percent. I agree a thousand. Percent. I think it's it's mainly. I think the danger is in the false expectations. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You studied that on page forty-three, so now you know it. That's dangerous um, because you don't know it. You, but you have the maybe you have the you have a tool that you can use to continue learning it. Um, but you have to be you have to feel some confidence and some curiosity. I guess that's another. You know, it seems like somehow or other every um, every approach to teaching seems to have four C's or three C's or or the three P's, or there are always these things, but it, it just occurred to me that I talk a lot about confidence, but I think also curiosity. If you haven't fostered curiosity in your students and a desire to, to know more, um, you've really done them a disservice. And I think that's the, that's the problem with textbooks that make you think you've done that, you've been there, done that, and you, don't, you aren't motivated to go further and look for more. I, I, I also talk about curiosity a lot and I think it's something which kind of, I, I, I often ask myself this question and I've asked other people this question, like, you know, the ancient Greeks, you know, they knew about the power of curiosity and, and even, even let's say 50 years ago, there was much more focus on the communicative approach. And so how did we end up here in 2019? Yeah, I, I, I... Again, at a, at a certain point in life, at a certain age in life, I think you have to accept that nobody can learn from your mistakes. They can only learn from their own. And, and, and in some ways, you know, when I was in graduate school in the 70s in the U.S., the idea of bilingual education for minority language children in the U.S. was like the hottest thing going. 
we were all so excited about bilingual education and so optimistic about the possibilities of bilingual education for minority language children in the US. And then for reasons of my own, you know, for my personal and professional reasons, I moved to Montreal. And in Montreal, I lived in a bilingual environment, but bilingual in ways that people don't necessarily uh, understand. And, and I discovered um, you know, the two solitudes, the fact that people too in, uh, might, might in fact speak both languages, but they tended to live in one of those languages most of the time. And in fact, many people did not speak both languages. Um, and the sort of mythological Canadian bilingualism was revealed to me. Um, and I, um, but I, but I also was in, in full of admiration for the attitudes towards bilingualism that I discovered in Canada in, in, in different parts of the country. There, you know, again, a whole range of different approaches and attitudes. But when I, I lived in Canada then for over 25 years and I focused my research and my personal life on the on Canadian phenomena, Canadian realities. And Canada continues to impress me with its welcoming of immigrants and refugees and its desire to integrate them into the language and community that they find themselves in. So when I moved back to the U.S. At the, in about 2000, 2001, I was, I mean, I, professionally I was aware, but personally I was stunned to realize that the debates about bilingual education in the U.S. that I thought were done in the 70s were in some ways even more intense and more emotional. And I moved, I moved to a state that I think of as one of the most liberal and, and um, open-minded places in North America just before they passed a bylaw, a referendum, um, prohibiting bilingual education. I got to vote in that referendum and I almost laughed when I voted. I thought, they'll never, this will never happen. And I was totally horrified to realize that the fear of bilingual education and the misinformation about bilingual education was such that it actually did pass. And, and the, the educators in Massachusetts who have had to pick up the pieces have done a wonderful job of coping with difficult circumstances. But it's, it's shocking that in 2000, whatever it was, I, I was hearing the same arguments that I had heard in 1975, 1976. I, I thought that was done. I thought we knew that bilingual education for children who come from minority language backgrounds was more long-term effective than short-term intensive uh, forced English and the, 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 the destruction of their family languages and the, the dismissal of their family languages but there it was all over again. So when I say, how did you say, how did we get here? How did we get back to grammar teaching? <laughs> you know, we thought we knew something, uh, and it, but, but it has to be learned every time. It has to be relearned and people have to um, experience it. They have to know what it feels like and then say, well, no, I guess that's not working. Let's try something different. But we, as educators, we have this crazy tendency to say, that's not perfect. Let's throw it out completely and start all over again. Let's then let's throw that out completely and start all over again. I've seen it too much. 
every, nothing's perfect and everything needs tweaking and fixing and adjusting and adapting and evolution. It's, it's, it's gotta be, we have to accept our own limitations and look for ways to make things better rather than dismissing alternative points of view. It's, it's got to, there have to be. Well, that was, um, uh, th th that got so deep. It, it really, it felt like a life lesson. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. Well, you, you, you are talking to a mother and grandmother. Remember that. <laughs> that was an amazing story. And, and I think, I mean, on one hand, obviously it's disappointing to realize that as humans in general, we're really not very good at, you know, remembering history or learning lessons from it. Right. Um, but yeah, what, uh, what, what, what it seems to be human nature, right? It, do, it does seem to be human nature. And, and I think we have to also forgive ourselves a little bit, but, but recognize that, that we, I mean, again, talk about a life lesson and a, a lesson in teaching. Nobody learns from being told. They only learn from what they experience. So we, teaching is still too much telling and not enough living, you know, doing. That, I, I agree. Again, I agree a million percent. <laughs> um, so kind of speaking about that, because in 2013, you published a new book, which is called Focus on Content-Based Language Teaching. So could you just talk a little bit about, you know, what, what, what does the content-based language teaching, what does that look like in the classroom? It looks like a lot of different things in a lot of different places. And um, I, again, if, if we take a, um, a spectrum and we, we look at some of the different manifestations of content-based language teaching, we go from those environments where uh, content is used to make language learning interesting to places where language is used to make content accessible and, and, and everything in between. Um, so in the US, every child who comes to school without English is engaged in content-based language learning because everything he or she learns has to be learned through English. Um, or if we, but if we go to something like a CLIL class in, in Germany or Spain, or a, a, a French immersion class in Toronto, we're looking at people who are trying to make language learning interesting by placing it in a context where people are having to learn something that is inherently valuable and they're using the language in order to, uh, sorry, they're, they're, they're using that interesting content to make language learning itself more valuable. So um, content-based language learning is so many different things um, in, in different environments. Like for, for a teacher who's used to, you know, who may have been trained in this way and who's used to either finding the curriculum inside their course book, or maybe they'll receive a curriculum from the administration, or maybe the curriculum matches with the exam. Um, you know, how, how can they make the kind of the mental transition to, to a different, to this totally different model, you know, where maybe they might feel like, well, I don't know what to do because there's no kind of plan. There's no today we're doing this and tomorrow we're doing that. Well, I think every teacher has to have a plan. Every teacher has to um, have a basis 
for what's going to happen today in the classroom. You have to have a lesson plan of some kind. It's not maybe not the same lesson plan as before, but I think with content-based language teaching, you really can go, as I said, this, this, this whole spectrum, all the way from um, a classroom where the expectation of the government curriculum is that you will teach these grammar points and be examined on those same grammar points at the end of a period. Um, it's in, in that environment, what content-based language teaching might look like is perhaps the addition of an interesting theme or an interesting story or something that creates an environment where the children are focused on the meaning children, I say children, of course, it could also be adults, um, where they're focused on the meaning for itself, because they really want to know what happens at the end of the story, or they really want to understand um, what the relationship is between these, these um, bits of chemi chemistry or, you know, or biology. They, they, they really want to understand the content, um, and that gets added to the grammar curriculum that's imposed. It's not fair to students not to teach them that curriculum because they are going to be held responsible for it. So as a teacher, you are really caught in that absolute reality. Um, but as a teacher, um, you can also perhaps add some, some, uh, some, some content that um, takes them beyond. Uh, and, and again, in fairness, a lot of textbooks do this now. They didn't always, but a lot of textbooks do already provide this kind of suggestion for how the, the, the language grammar or other uh, vocabulary, other focus that's in the textbook can be expanded beyond the, 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 the lesson itself uh, so that students have the experience of interacting with language for the purpose of understanding it and, and making themselves understood in the context of the language. Um, so that's one extreme end of content-based language teaching. The other extreme end is content-based language teaching where students get no guidance in um, the language itself and are simply expected to acquire language through exposure um, as for example, in, in some of the early French immersion contexts where teachers were, were not allowed or just, were discouraged from um, interrupting or correcting or giving feedback. And, and while the students had a grammar lesson in the language arts part of the day, they didn't have any guidance during the science lesson or the history lesson or the subject matter of other, other content. Um, and so they ended up um, you know, not making the connection between what was in the grammar lesson and what was in the content lesson. So the, the real challenge of content-based language teaching is to make language learning and content learning mutually supportive um, rather than independent of each other. Well, that, that was actually something <clears throat> really interesting that I heard you talking about in, in another interview. You said that um, you know, there are two types of students, for example, in, in North America, you have a student who maybe, you know, they speak Spanish at home and then they come to school and they will learn English in, in this kind they of content-based way, right? They must. 
They have no choice. Because <laughs> they have no choice. And, and maybe they don't even receive any direct instruction in learning English. But then at the same school, you'll have students coming to learn maybe French, you know, who, and, and the type of instruction they get and the expectations of the teacher and the students are completely different. And that, that kind of blew my mind when you, when you pointed that out. And, and I wonder if it's a little bit of kind of Pygmalion in the classroom, like the teachers have low expectations, the students have low expectations, so it doesn't work. I mean, is that, is that what it is, do you think? That's, that's very interesting. Yes, I, I do think. Um, yes, I do. I do. I do. I, the, the example that you gave came from my first teaching experience where I was teaching French, but only students who were academically successful were allowed to take French because um, that because it you know required intellectual um, you know superiority to be able to study a foreign language. And meanwhile, the kids at the other end of the hall who were Spanish language children coming from Spanish language families had better learn English quick so they could continue their education. And I kept saying, gee, they must all be brilliant or, or else there's something wrong with this picture. Um, so yes, the expectation for the minority language child in the English speaking school was learn it and learn it fast. We'll give you a year. And by then you should be ready to just hit the ground running. Uh, whereas learning French, well, we'll, you know, as long as you get a few verbs um, conjugated by the end of the year and, uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred vocabulary words, you'll be okay. Um, no, you know, it's the, the expectations really are quite different. And, 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 and I guess you don't, most people don't, well, again, we go back to how do you learn language? You learn it by using it. Um, and in a, in a so-called foreign language classroom where you spend three or four hours a week studying bits and pieces of language isolated from each other, the expectations are low. Of course they are, yeah. So, so what, what would be your advice to, to teachers? Because I know that there's a lot of teachers in Europe who normally due to, due to laws, like federal laws, basically, they are kind of forced to teach some of their subjects in English. And, and so maybe some of them feel like they're not equipped to be English teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and so they don't know how to do that because maybe they're a science teacher. And then you have another group who maybe um, are English teachers who don't know how to teach science. Yeah. Um, so so what, what's your advice to any teacher who finds himself in that situation? It is a widespread problem. It is, it is a problem in many parts of the world. Um, it's a problem that's led to some very unfortunate decisions about what works and what doesn't work. Um, it, it's one of those examples of something where a, um, a, a, um, a decision is made at higher levels, sometimes based on knowledge of research that has been done in other places, for example. Um, and that gets translated into rules, but it doesn't get translated into teacher education, the provision of adequate curriculum, 
so it gets imposed and tried, and then it runs into so much difficulty that a decision is made to not use that anymore, but to go back to something that preceded this great idea that was not quite thought through. I mean, it, this this cycle is so nearly universal um, and, and so troubling, uh, but that doesn't solve the problem of the teacher who's actually in that classroom being, being told, you must now teach science or you must now teach mathematics in English. Um, and the most successful cases for that kind of content-based language teaching where people are being asked to do something they're not prepared to do and have no experience in doing. The most successful examples are those where they're, where, where teachers are paired um, with other teachers who have the expertise that they don't have. So that the math teacher gets paired with an English teacher and they work together to come up with materials that allow students to learn language and mathematics. Um, a, a, an English teacher and a science teacher, an English teacher and a history teacher, so they can um, create materials that honor the academic content and also honor the realities of language learning um, it, for second and foreign language learners. It's an answer if you are working in an environment where there's enough flexibility that you can have that kind of cooperation. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. Um, but if you are in those environments, there are some, some good examples of that kind of um, uh, collaboration. But, but, but again, I think teachers have to have reasonable expectations. Students have to have reasonable expectations of, of what can be accomplished. But unfortunately, the, sometimes the imposition of curriculum and pedagogy from some other place um, doesn't take account of what can realistically be accomplished. And, and then when it isn't successful, um, the, the culprits are often misidentified. It's either the teachers aren't good enough uh, or the curriculum was never right in the first place. And things get, things get discarded, people get discarded when they were never given the opportunity in the first place to do it in the way that it needs to be done. That's, um, that's a sad fact of education, not just in language teaching, but in other kinds of educational environments as well. So, so what, what would you say are some of the, the kind of like the top three or, or the top five things that need to, you know, that need to change? Um, it seems like maybe one of them is people in power need to stop making uninformed sweeping decisions. Is that? Sounds like a good place to start. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is, this is one of those things that um, again, when we talk about things going in circles, um, I, it's something that I have known and experienced for far too many years that um, decisions are made at higher levels about a, a, a change in the way things are done. And sometimes new textbooks are brought in and new materials are, are brought in, but the training of teachers, the re-education of teachers, the convincing of teachers uh, doesn't all doesn't get the kind of attention, the kind of funding, the kind of resources that are needed to actually make that transition. And I suppose in a way this is 
this is maybe I'm maybe I'm making an argument here for um, uh, the the inclusion of language acquisition um, in the curriculum for teachers who are about to teach, you know, in, in a whole lot of different environments. Um, the language acquisition course tends to be seen in many teacher education programs as part of the theoretical background that teachers get. And sometimes teachers resist it for exactly that reason. They say, please just tell me what to do. Stop this theory stuff. Um, but we, uh, Nina and I remember a, a teacher who came to us, um, or she was actually a student who came after she had been teaching for a while, came back and said of the language acquisition course, that was the most practical course I had. Because what she meant was that when she was out trying to teach stuff and students were not learning it or learning it, but not quite the way she, uh, the textbook had anticipated, she could say, ah, I see what they're doing. I see they're doing, they're, they're, they're proceeding along this path. I'm trying to make them go this way, but their learning mechanisms are causing them to go this way. I'm not gonna panic. I'm going to just give them time and step back and try it again uh, and wait until they're ready to actually learn this and I'll just keep teaching it until they, they finally get it. Um, so, um, you know, one of the things that needs to be done, I guess, is, is just, as I've said, this has been one of my theme songs over the years, to have realistic expectations, uh, teachers for themselves and teachers for their students so that people don't spend their time being disappointed or frustrated, but rather that they accept limitations and simply recognize that they have to keep keep doing things again, keep doing things again until they finally click. And they will if you're, you know, with patience and... Yeah, I think actually this is something that of all the people I've ever spoken to, no one's ever really talked about kind of sticking it out or, or maybe... Like if something's not working, rather than throw it in the bin, you just maybe modify it or, um, yeah. yeah, I think you're right. There's too much of this, like, let's try something completely new that's never been done before. Yeah, it's very, that's very troubling, but it's very typical of, of um, education, I'm afraid. Uh, well, I mean, uh, I don't want to get into a conversation um, about uh, big business. Uh, yeah, I mean, I understand the... the, the, um, the, the, the targeting of the, the big publishers as being the big bad guys, just like the big pharma in the United States. That's your, you know, oh, you just say big pharma and you just immediately, you want all the friends you need in the world. You sort of overlook some of the good things that pharma has done, but hey, that's another problem. Um, anyway, I think that the publishers, to be sure, they want to sell books. That's what they do. Um, but they've also done some really wonderful things. There's some wonderful new textbooks and materials and, and ways of learning that are uh, available, lots of resources online for people. And, the, and the, the publishers have traditionally been the ones who had the money to uh, make these resources available. Some of that's changing now, but, uh, and, and, and publishers are having a hard time in some um, domains. At some point, I would like to come back to... Um, your early talk about how I said it's neither this nor that, it's somewhere in the middle. And I just want to say, I, I, sometimes I feel like a one-man um, advertising company for Paul Nation. But I remember 10 years ago when I came upon his Four Strands 
and thought about how that could be translated into a whole variety of classrooms that I thought this has to be required reading for every teacher uh, teaching, no matter how, no matter what. Uh, it explains so much and it is so compatible with what we know about language acquisition, second language acquisition in or out of a classroom. Um, the, the, the need for you know, meaning-focused input, meaning-focused output, fluency development, and language-focused learning, all those four strands, honestly, to me, that should be the, the, the basis for teacher education um, everywhere. No, actually, I, I interviewed him about two weeks ago, and um, and uh, I'm going to publish it really soon. He he spoke about the four strands, and yeah, he, he was amazing actually. And and I think one well one thing that he that he specifically told me was, and I, again, it seems so it makes me feel like such an idiot, but but he said, um, you know, a really good fluency course is really different from like a language learning course. He yeah. said a fluency course is about repeating to death stuff that you already know, like no new, no new vocabulary, no new grammar, you just repeat yeah. until it becomes automatic. And I was like, yes, of course. And, and, and that, and that is so important to me. And I always, when I talk about this, I always say that fluency, which people misunderstand so much. They, they, they think fluency means you can talk fast. I mean, it's just so not that. Um, and that fluency actually involves all the skills. It isn't just speaking fluency. It's also listening and reading and writing fluency. Um, and it, it has two huge benefits. One is it builds confidence. It makes people feel like they, yeah, I can do this. And it, it's, it conserves cognitive space for paying attention to other things that are new. And it just, um, it, 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 yeah, when, when I talk about the four strands and I, and I do at every opportunity, um, I say, you know, okay, we've got meaning-focused input, meaning-focused output and language-focused learning. What else could there be? And it's a, it is so interesting how rare virtually non-existent is the answer fluency it, it just isn't self-evident somehow and yet once you've thought about it and once you know what it means what it really means um it's crucial it's crucial and it's fluent and i remember when i first came upon the four strands and i in my mind put fluency together with the um repetition, the, the, the rote repetition. And I had a little interchange and a little exchange of email messages with Paul. And boy, I got it right away that fluency development is a meaning focused strand. You're using familiar language, but you're using it for a purpose. You're using it to make meaning, to read or to produce or meaning. And I just, uh, you know, this is just absolutely brilliant. It's not rote. It's, it's, it's cognitive fluency, and it's it's just it's it's worth it's it's worth the other it's, it it has its role with the other three strands. It's really an important feature. You know, look, I'm not I'm not a trained linguist, and and you know, I've only been teaching for ten years, so I am in no way qualified to 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 to, to be the judge, jury, or executioner of, of of anything. But I have to say that normally when I read, you know, books about how to get fluency, how to learn language. You know, almost immediately I'm like, well, come on, that's not, that's not real and that, or that's ridiculous or, but 
because Paul Nation, he, he actually wrote a PDF um, and he has it it's free on his website. I think it's called How to Learn a Language, I think it's called. And I read it and like every single page, I was like, yes, 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 yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, he's he's a he's a an international treasure, is Paul. He really is. Yeah. What would be your advice to any student out there who maybe has had the experience that you talked about at the beginning of the of this interview? They've studied French for six years and they've got nothing, or they've studied English for ten years and they've got nothing. What's what's your advice for that student to turn them into somebody who can actually do things with with language? The first would would be to remind them that they actually do know quite a lot because if they studied for all that time it's it, it was not for nothing but what they need to do now is to put themselves in situations where they really really care about understanding or making themselves understood to challenge themselves by putting themselves in conversations or in reading situations or television watching or film watching um, where they, they really care, they really want to know and they really want to be understood and they really want to understand. So to challenge themselves to, um, um, to make language learning a necessity and not just an an option um, to, 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 to challenge themselves to, to not bail, to, to not run away when it gets hard. Uh, but but to emphasize, I would assume that most of these students are people who have had six or 10 years of English instruction that focused mainly on grammar or on memorizing vocabulary, um, as opposed to students who'd had six or 10 years of content-based language teaching or other kinds of um, immersion instruction. So in that context, I would just say, be brave, be brave um, and, um, and put yourself in, in challenging situations. Beautiful advice. Okay. And my, my, my final question for you is, and I ask everybody this, I mean, you've, you've devoted almost your entire life to, to studying language and, and how we learn it. And I'm wondering, why do you think that language is important? Well, I mean, the obvious superficial answer is that it's through language that 99.9% .9 of the human species uh, communicates with, the other, with, with, with each other. Um, but it isn't, I mean, there's communication. There's also identity. Um, uh, and this is one of the reasons that I feel so strongly about bilingual education or the preservation of the language that you learned in childhood, um, why I get so distressed about um, early childhood education that emphasizes the second language instead of strengthening the first language that the children bring with them to school. Um, um, so why is language so important? I mean, obviously it's 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 probably it's the most important tool for human interaction, but it's also such a crucial part of our identity, of, of our understanding of who we are. Um, yeah, language is um <laughs> 
it really doesn't go much deeper than that, does it? It, it is it is who we are. And um, when when language is interrupted in some way, either because you move into a new environment where you don't speak the language or when you have some kind of injury or, or illness where your language ability is disrupted, you suddenly find yourself feeling not like yourself. You are no longer you. And this is, of course, what so many adult language learners experience. They suddenly find themselves feeling um, childlike and dependent. Um, and they, they need to build up that confidence again in, in the new language, but they have, to have, they have to continue to have experiences in the language that, in which they are fully themselves um, and not to lose that sense of self as they learn the new language. Wow, that was a that was a beautiful answer. <laughs> um, well, uh, th- Patsy Lightbaum, thank you very much for thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Well, thanks for your visit.